lecture notes, the medieval period, and some. Geographically speaking, thus far in the course we've mostly been in southwestern Europe and northern Africa. With Anselm, we expand our geographical range and move up to France and the UK, where Anselm lived. I'll never require you to memorize dates or locations, but it might be helpful to reference the following timelines and map just to help you keep the different figures we've covered thus far in the course in their historical and geographic context. And then an aside for listeners, obviously the timelines and map are going to be much better uh, viewed visually on Canvas, but there's just a brief timeline of kind of uh, philosophy from Aristotle's death up until uh, Descartes, who of course we haven't talked about yet, and then a map just giving some key locations. Again, not required to memorize, but it can just be helpful um, so that you kind of have a mental category for the time and approximate area these people lived. So Anselm is most famous for giving an argument for the existence of God known as the ontological argument. That's what we'll be studying, but before we get into the details of Anselm's argument, it's important to first consider how Anselm understood the relationship between faith and reason more generally. Let's pause and back up. Intuitions about faith and reason vary wildly. Some people think that they are quite incompatible. You can reach that conclusion from a religiously motivated perspective. They're not compatible because science says things that my faith says are wrong, or a scientifically motivated perspective. Religion is not rational because it encourages people to believe on faith as opposed to the evidence. Or you can argue that they're compatible, that religious faith is rational, and or that religion and science ask different questions, and or a rather relativist view that all views are equally right. Please note, this last view, the relativist one, is philosophically untenable. All views cannot be equally right because contradictions cannot both be right. It cannot be true that God exists and God does not exist. These two views contradict each other and only one can be true, even if you're personally unsure about which one is true. So what did Anselm think about faith and reason? He's famous for the motto, fides quarens intellectum, a Latin phrase normally translated as faith seeking understanding. In other words, rather than use philosophy, reason, and logic to prove his faith, to abstain from faith until he could prove it with logic, Anselm sees philosophy and argument as something that comes after faith to strengthen and deepen it. This means that Anselm sees faith and reason as deeply compatible. He seems to think that faith is prior, that it should come first, but he doesn't think of reason as an enemy to faith that threatens to knock it over. He thinks reason can be used in service of faith. Arguably Aquinas conceived of faith and reason in the same way, but not every philosopher will study in the course understands the relationship between faith and reason in this way. You'll have a chance to reflect on and discuss your own views on the relationship between faith and reason, or more specifically faith and science, in an upcoming discussion. Please watch the following crash course video on Anselm's ontological argument before moving forward. It's just a video from Crash Course Philosophy that reviews like what the ontological argument is, but I'm gonna continue to go over it. I do recommend the video because the ontological argument is quite complicated, so it's good to hear it a bunch of times. Ontological is maybe a scary word, so it might help to remember that ontology comes from the Greek word for being. So an ontological argument argues that God exists based purely on the being of God. Huh? It sounds wonky. 
Let's look at how it works, taking the argument premise by premise, and then of course I'll loop back and unpack them. Premise one, everything either exists in the understanding, in reality, or both. Premise two, everyone, theist and atheist, agrees that God is defined as the greatest possible being, the being that which none greater can be conceived. Premise three, existence in reality is greater than existence merely in understanding. Premise four, if God existed only in understanding, then God would not be the being than which none greater can be conceived. Conclusion, everyone, theist and atheist, should agree that God also exists in reality. Okay, and aside, notice how some of the argument types we've been studying actually show up here. You can see both modus tollens and a disjunctive syllogism at play. For instance, premise four is a conditional. If God existed only in understanding, then God would not be the being than which none greater can be conceived. And two negates the consequent of that conditional. That's the then part of the conditional. That is a modus tollens. Then from the modus pollens with pre tollens with premises four and tr two, we can conclude the negation of the antecedent, the negation of the if part of the conditional, i.e. we can conclude that God does not exist only in understanding. And although it's not exactly worded as a disjunct, premise one, everything either exists in the understanding, in reality, or both, it is essentially a disjunct, and we're just denying one part of the disjunct and saying it cannot be the case that God exists only in understanding, therefore God must exist in reality. That was really quick though, so let's slow down and take it step by step. First, understanding this argument requires understanding the distinction between existing in understanding only versus existing in reality. The following diagram might help illustrate that distinction for you. I am gonna describe the diagram. It's a Venn diagram, so two overlapping circles. One side is existence and understanding. The other side is existence and reality. Things that exist only in understanding are the plan for a painting, Santa Claus, Darth Vader. Things that exist in both understanding and reality are the two of us, the sun, existence and reality, dark matter, question mark, question mark, question mark, undiscovered planets, question mark. Okay, so things that exist in the understanding alone are imaginary, but they have a sort of existence. They exist as ideas in our mind. Examples are Santa Claus or the plan you have for a dream house to be built someday in the future. They're not real in the sense that you won't find them anywhere in the world, but they have some sort of existence as ideas. In contrast, things that exist in reality are, well, objects that actually exist in the world. Ansel notes that objects that exist in the world have a kind of dual existence. They exist independently of us in reality, and they have an existence in understanding, i.e. an existence in our mind. So you have an existence in reality, but you also have an existence in my mind because I have an idea of you from knowing your name and a few things about you. Or look around you. Everything you see right now has an existence in reality and an existence in your mind as you perceive and think about it. Now let's go back to God. What about God? What kind of existence does God have? Does God exist only in understanding, like Santa Claus? Or does God exist in reality also? Anselm thinks we can answer this question by considering the definition of God. By definition, says Anselm, God is the greatest being. 
that than which nothing greater can be imagined. And everyone agrees to this definition, even atheists who don't believe that God actually exists. If this seems weird, consider an analogy. Most people believe that unicorns don't exist, but we agree on the definition of a unicorn. If I pointed to a cow or a rhino and insisted that it was a unicorn, you would correctly respond that I am just wrong. A unicorn has a definition, even if it doesn't exist. Therefore, even an atheist who thinks that God doesn't exist can agree with the theist about the definition of God, and that definition is that God is the greatest possible being, the being so great that no greater being can be imagined. Then, the key move in the argument is this. If God is the greatest being, wouldn't it be not so great for God to only exist in the understanding? Surely the greatest being would exist in understanding and reality, because existence in reality is greater than existence in mere understanding. Things that exist in reality are, well, real. Things existing only in the understanding are ideas. Existence in reality is obviously greater, or at least so thinks Anselm. Therefore, says Anselm, God must exist. Okay, remember how I said early on in the course that we have a two-part task in philosophy, first to understand and then to evaluate? Hopefully by now you understand or sort of understand the ontological argument. You will probably need to read the above over once or twice more to really solidify it. And a hint, try to explain it to a friend or family member. Often when you try to explain something to someone else, you suddenly discover the gaps in your understanding. So let's move on to evaluation. Is it a good argument? Certainly, it's a stubborn argument. That's, that's a weird adjective to apply to an argument, but by stubborn, I mean that it's still sticking around today being resoundingly debated. Philosophers are still trying to give improved and updated versions of it and or give criticisms of it. For our part, I'm going to want us to consider two famous criticisms, and I will leave it up to you to determine whether or not the argument has any merit. Well, one criticism we're going to actually hold off on because it was given by Kant. We'll cover Kant's criticism of the ontological argument when we get to studying Kant later on. For now, we'll consider a criticism that was actually given by another monk. Pause and let that sink in. A monk. Someone who believed in God. Early on, I told you never to accept bad arguments for conclusions you believe to be true, and that's what Guanillo the monk was doing. Actually, I've heard it pronounced both Guanilo and Guanillo, so I'm going to say Guanillo, but I don't know. Obviously, Guanillo believed that God exists, but he thought this argument for that conclusion wasn't good, so he criticized it. It's a good reminder that we should not be immediately satisfied with an argument just because we think the conclusion is true, but should rather consider whether the premises are true and whether they actually give us reason to think that the conclusion is true. So what was the objection given by Guanillo? He argued Anselm's logic was flawed because it could similarly be used to argue for the existence of a lost island, the greatest possible island. The argument would go something like this. One, everything either exists in the understanding, in reality, or both. Two, the lost island is that than which no greater being can be conceived. Three, existence in reality is greater than existence merely in the understanding. Four, if the lost island existed only in understanding, then it would not be that than which no greater island can be conceived. Conclusion, the lost island must exist in reality. 
I promise we're almost done, <laughs> but I want to add one further layer of complexity. Remember the phrase reductio ad absurdum? And it looks sort of like reduce and absurd in English. If you don't remember what it means, a reductio is an argument type where we begin with an assumption, we show that a contradiction or something false follows from that assumption, and then we discard the original assumption in light of the contradiction it leads to. Guanello is trying to give a reductio of Anselm's ontological argument. The reductio would look something like this. One, Anselm's ontological argument is successful. This is the assumption that we're trying to show false. Premise two, if Anselm's ontological argument is successful as an argument, then we can use that argument to prove that the lost island must exist. And that was the example I gave above. Therefore, the lost island exists. That was just a modus ponens with one and two. Four, but the lost island cannot exist. This is just assumed to be an obvious fact. Five, contradiction. The lost island cannot both exist and not exist. And then we conclude that Anselm's ontological argument cannot be successful. Anselm tried to respond by arguing that the ontological argument only works for necessary beings, i.e. beings that must necessarily exist. We'll talk more about what that means in the upcoming notes on Avicenna. But the problem with this response is that his argument then becomes circular. If we introduce the idea that God is a necessary being in the premises, then we're already assuming God's existence in the premises, because necessary beings by definition must exist, as opposed to providing reasons to think that this is true and arguing towards it as a conclusion.